Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16 and ending in verse 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. God's word. Uh, good morning, everybody. So we've come to the very end of Matthew. I've been looking forward to this text for 18 months. And it's maybe the most famous text in Matthew, the Great Commission. In fact, this has been such an impactful text that it's not just that everybody knows this. It's not just that most people have probably been to some kind of missions or youth, something where this has been preached. We even have whole denominational groups named after this Great Commission Baptists, for example. This is one of the foundational texts for Christianity and for our faith, and I think sometimes that can be a real nightmare for a preacher. Everybody's got several sermons on this text already in their head. What I want you to see this morning, though, is how this is a culmination of everything that's happened in Matthew up to this point and a start of a new era, the age of the reign of Christ in the church for all of history. So I promise not to be this guy that always tells stories about his kids from the pulpit, but I've got to tell you one this morning about Davey. So uh, the other day, I'm sitting up at my desk upstairs in our house, and I can hear Davey coming up the stairs, which is kind of an ordeal. And I can hear her coming, and she's coming upstairs, and she's saying something to herself over and over and over again. And she gets up into our room, and she walks up right up next to my desk, and she says... Lunch is ready, dada. <laughs> Which you've got to know, if you don't know us, she's 18 months old, okay? Which makes a big difference in this story, if you don't know how old she is. Because for us, this was a huge moment for her. This was like a, a, a whole graduation into another season of life where we can get her to do tasks all the time in our house with a reasonable expectation that she will carry them out. And I came downstairs, I grabbed her, came downstairs, and Laura and I were just so excited because we thought it was so cool, not only that she went all the way up there on her own and remembered what she was doing, but that she delivered the message faithfully. Lunch is ready. Come on down. And as far as you know, developmental leaps and stuff go, I don't know where this fits, but to us, the amazing thing was we have watched her from going from not even being able to talk, not being able to walk, to climbing the stairs, to being able to talk, to now being able to deliver something. And so for us, we've seen a transformation that's taken place. And if I told you that she was 16, it would be remarkable for other reasons that she did this, but not for developmental reasons. But to us, that stage of development is so cool. We're so excited about it. We were celebrating this for several days. And 
that is what we have at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. That exact same thing. Baby Christians becoming a new level of developed, mature disciples of Jesus. And the two things that that are the markers of this development in every Christian life is the ability to go faithfully and the ability to present the message faithfully. The ability to remember and present clearly the message that Jesus has charged every one of us to present to the world is the final stage of development of a disciple of Jesus. So I want you to see two things this morning. One, the Great Commission, the message that we've been given and how it applies to our lives today. But secondly, in doing this, I want to show you in each of these stages of this passage that the Great Commission actually sums up all the great themes of the Bible in one moment with Jesus. So the first thing in this passage, and, and this is the part they get skipped the most, is the foundation. This is in, if you start in verse 16, it says, now the 11 disciples, you know at this point they've lost Judas out of the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples, they go to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now this is a bigger group than the 11. There's a, there's a whole traveling cohort of people following Jesus now, and when they got there, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I've talked about this variously throughout the Gospel of Matthew. There's a trend sometimes in the church to say, well, if, you know, if they would just meet the real Jesus, then they would believe. That is sometimes true. But, but actually, there's something deeper going on in our hearts to such an extent. We, in fact, we are so marred by sin and broken that some of us can actually see the real Jesus and continue in our doubts, right? This is just part of tweaking our vision of what we should encounter in the world. There are people who saw Jesus risen from the dead on this mountain where he's about to ascend into heaven and were like, I'm not sure I really believe. Some doubted and some will doubt. We are going to encounter some who see the real Jesus and doubt, but, but the disciples are the ones who fall on their faces and worship him and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the foundation of the Great Commission. Sometimes we start the Great Commission with the word go. Go and make disciples of all nations. But, but actually, I, I want to reframe that a little bit this morning. It's not go, it's therefore go. Therefore go. The foundation of the whole Great Commission is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, therefore, you should take up this mission. Right? So, so sometimes we're, we're very comfortable with the all authority in heaven has been given to Jesus. He has, he has risen, he has ascended, he is off in the heavenly realms, and there he is reigning perfectly. But you notice Jesus doesn't say, in heaven, I will be reigning, best of luck down here on the earth. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is currently the installed monarch over everything. Over everything. 
heaven and on earth and under the earth, the song that we sang this morning from Philippians 2, will bow and their tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. This is an enthronement scene. In fact, it takes up a theme from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this amazing vision of the court of heaven, and one who looks like the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is seated on his throne, and his glory is filling up the throne room, and someone who looks like a son of man comes, and the Ancient of Days gives his kingdom and his authority and his power to this son of man to rule over all the nations. This, as the disciples were standing there, they would have realized this moment has happened at the ascension. That the Ancient of Days, God the Father, by raising His Son Jesus from the dead, has now crowned Him and given Him authority over everything. In fact, I want you to see this because in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about the famous Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. This was actually a prophecy that they thought was coming true. We sometimes pretend like, or we we live our lives like, this prophecy is still off in the future. Someday, at some point, Jesus is going to be reigning. But actually, what the ascension shows us, what Jesus says plainly is, that moment has come. Jesus has been enthroned. Jesus is the king. He is reigning over all things. Now, most of us, when we hear that, will say something like what happens in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm not seeing Jesus reigning over everything. right? If you turn on the news, if you read the newspaper, if you get on Twitter for more than half a second, you're like, Jesus is clearly not reigning. So, so what is it? Is Jesus reigning and not doing a very good job? Is he not reigning? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is reigning in such a way that his kingdom is an extending, already and not yet kind of kingdom. It's one that it has started, it has been announced, and it's like a medieval world where the writers have gone out with the news of a new king, but it's going to take some time to get the news to every part of the new kingdom. Many of us are familiar with D-Day, with the invasion of Normandy, and I think it's safe to say it is the greatest, in fact, it's the largest seaborne invasion in the history of the world. It's, the more you study it, the more amazing it is that the United States and the Allies put 150,000 troops on boats and invaded and occupied Europe to dispel the Nazis from the mainland. But not that many people are familiar with what happened the night before. So at midnight, leading into June 6th, about 13,000 paratroopers got onto planes and were dropped miles over the coast into enemy territory. And in fact, if you read historians, military historians talk about this, and, and, and especially if you read Patton and Eisenhower who were in charge of organizing this, the land invasion could never have happened without the paratroopers who were dropped in enemy territory, who were given specific tasks of connecting up with the invasion when it came and blocking off certain routes and traveling by night and giving signals in the enemy territory waiting for the full invasion to come. 
Jesus at the Great Commission is sending out disciples, and we want it so badly to be Normandy. Right? We, we want to be part of that, but, but we find ourselves in a position that is much more like these paratroopers that have been dropped into an enemy world who are waiting for the promised invasion of good to overcome the forces of evil. And someday, that invasion will happen. Someday, Christ will reign in a visible way where we can see all the plans of God come true in the new heavens and the new earth. But for the time being, we have been dropped into what seems like a very foreign, upside-down world, and we have been tasked with preparing for what is an imminent invasion of good. We, Christians now and Christians then, are charged with getting ready for what God will ultimately do in the long run. We have been the people who take this first part of this phrase, therefore go. Therefore, I have been given all authority, therefore trusting that someday our faith will be sight. But in the moment, we've been called to work in a world that has rebelled against God as people who are part of a much larger force of good that is taking over the kingdoms of the earth. You'll remember this theme culminates at the end of the Bible. When Babylon falls at the end of Revelation, there's a loud voice in heaven and it says, finally, now the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our God in heaven. We are part of the group who is awaiting and longing and sowing for the day when the kingdoms flip. And we can see that the new king is reigning over every inch of the kingdoms of the earth forever. The second part of the Great Commission is the command. And I hate to do this, but I've got to give a little grammatical analysis of this passage. So there's going to be a little English here, and uh, it is a Sunday, and school is out, but you've got to know this to understand this passage. In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And in verse 19, he says, go therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all that I command you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so in our English versions, there are a lot of verbs in these sentences. And for us, it's been a little while, but I want you to think about the word imperative. An imperative is a command. And there is actually only one command in this passage. And it is make disciples. Okay, so the way that English works, although we don't typically think it this way, but especially the way that Greek works is when you have one imperative and you have a bunch of other verbs that are participles around it, the participles can have force of an imperative, like you should go, you should baptize, you should make, you should um, teach. But the imperative tells you what is the central point of this entire thing. Everything else is an explanation of the main verb. And so a lot of times in the Great Commission, we preach this like it's a missions passage, go being the predominant verb. Sometimes you hear it as an evangelism passage, like baptizing is the main verb. Sometimes you hear it as a discipleship, like we've got to teach people and instruct them, like that's the main concept. But the main concept of the Great Commission is make disciples. Make disciples. 
And here's how you do it. By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So if we want to center in on what Jesus' last words to the church were, we would have to isolate this phrase, which is just a single word, which means turn people into the image of Christ. Turn people into little pictures, little walking Jesuses all over the world. That's the mission of the church, right? And this is what separates the church from any other organization in the world. A charity exists to help people. Churches also exist to help people, but that is not their primary mission. Education institutions, they they exist to educate people. Churches also like to educate people, but that is not their core mission. Social clubs, we could go all the way down the list. The church has many overlapping missions, but there's only one organization in the world that has this mission. Make disciples of all the nations. Turn the nations to look like Jesus Christ. Now, you, you, might, you might think here, if we're going to make disciples, we've got to know what Jesus thinks a disciple is. So what, what is it to be a disciple? And this is where you can see the brilliance of Matthew's gospel on full display. Because this word disciple, this word that means make disciples, is a theme that organizes the entire gospel of Matthew. In fact, from the beginning until now, we've been saying Matthew is the disciples' gospel. It, it, that's the unique thing about Matthew, is it is completely organized around taking you from somebody who is just getting acquainted with Jesus to somebody who is fulfilling the commission to make disciples, not just to be one yourself, but to make disciples across the whole earth. So in the beginning of of the gospel, I just want to show you how this fits together. In the beginning of the gospel, what you see is the birth narratives of Jesus. But then in chapter 4, you see Jesus begin to start his mission. And in chapter 4, he begins his ministry. And we get a theme verse for his ministry when the disciples start to come to him. And they start to follow him. And Jesus begins preaching. And in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This first stage of discipleship is just to follow, just to stand behind. In fact, that's what this verb means. It it doesn't mean follow in a theoretical sense like we use it, like a metaphor. It means like get right behind me and go where I go. You, You just stay right behind me in my jet stream. You go where I go. Watch what I'm doing. That's the first stage of being a disciple. Just Get right behind me. And you see this happen in the Gospels. From chapter 5 all the way through chapter 9, Jesus is the one doing the ministry. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the one teaching about what it means to live as a Christian. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus, it says, went through the synagogues teaching and healing and casting out demons. And you know what the disciples were doing? Just watching. They were just there. They were with Jesus, they were eating meals with him, they were traveling with him, they were listening to him, they were just following along behind Jesus. And it's amazing if you go to Israel or New York City, you will still see this principle uh, in action. Because a rabbi, when disciples would come to a rabbi, the first order of business would be for the disciples to just watch and start to conform every part of their life to the rabbi. And so when you go somewhere where there's Orthodox Jews, what you'll notice is 
there's all these groups running around. And there's usually an old guy with a long beard and a bunch of young guys with short beards who are right behind him going everywhere that he's going. And you notice that the different groups have something slightly different about them. They all have black long coats on, they all have dress shoes on, they all have white shirts on, but some of them have fuzzy hats, and some of them have top hats, and some of them have little bowlers on, and some of them look like fedoras, and some of them have certain kinds of shirts and ties on, and certain ones of them have certain shoes on. And what you realize is that is all determined by the rabbi. If the rabbi gets his hat with this kind of band on it, you get your hat with that kind of band on it. If he has the fuzzy thing around his, that's what you're going to have. If he buys his shirts here, you're going to buy your shirts there. The first part of a disciple's life is just making sure that you are completely and totally aligned and imitating your rabbi. So the first part of being a disciple in Jesus, a disciple of Jesus for us is to start to follow him and conform every part of our life to him. You know, for us, it's not about dressing like him. It's acting like him, talking like him, thinking like him, trying to figure out what part of my life could be more conformed to the life of Jesus. What is it that I see Jesus doing and, and engaging with people in a way that I could imitate in my own life? Now, in chapter 10 of Matthew, something starts to change. The disciples start to do the ministry. In chapter 10, Jesus teaches, and, and his teaching changes a little bit. He says in chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, which is a hinge point in the gospel, he says to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And in chapter 10, Jesus is going to begin to teach about how the disciples should partake in the harvest. In chapter 10, he sends out the 12 on their first mission. He tells them that persecution is coming. He encourages them not to be afraid. He tells them that they should expect that they're going to have opposition. And then he sends them out and says, go do what I've taught you to do, and then come back and we're going to talk about it. Sure enough, from chapter, set, from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 18, what you get is the disciples are beginning not just to follow Jesus, but to work alongside Jesus. Now all of a sudden you see miracles where it's not just Jesus who's doing the miracle. It's Jesus who, with the help of the disciples, is doing the miracle. Now it's not just Jesus engaging one-on-one -on -one with people. It's Jesus with his group of disciples who is speaking to people and encountering people. Jesus, like a rabbi takes his disciples from just learners to apprentices, someone who is not actually just there for theoretical knowledge, but someone who is going to take on the craft and do it themselves. See, the best probably English translation for disciple, if you want to get away from kind of a, a churchy word, is the word apprentice, someone who isn't just there to learn, someone who's actually there to do eventually. See, every disciple has as a goal that they one day will practice the trade that Jesus practices, building the kingdom of heaven. With the ancient rabbis, this meant studying the Torah, yes, but also studying your rabbi's interpretation of the Torah and being able to teach it. In fact, this is kind of a little play on words that 
the, the commentaries on the Torah are called the Talmud, which you can read today. And an apprentice of a rabbi is called a Talmud, somebody who is so identified with the teaching of their rabbi that they begin teaching like their rabbi did. You would do this for a certain amount of time, and then at one point you would take on the yoke of the rabbi. The yoke of the rabbi is their whole body of teaching. And so it doesn't surprise us in Matthew 11 that as the disciples are beginning to develop and move into this stage of following Jesus, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Every disciple crosses this threshold of being a watcher to being a helper to finally, in chapter 19, being a doer, being a doer of what Jesus has commanded us to do. In this third scene of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19 through 28, we see Jesus speaking about things when he is gone. See, he starts to turn his attention to the cross, which means he's going to die, he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to ascend into heaven. And the people that are going to be left on earth is not going to be Jesus doing the ministry anymore. It's going to be his disciples who take up the mantle of their rabbi and begin to do the ministry themselves. See, we see these scenes of judgment that we talked about in chapters 23 through 25, where Jesus is talking about, hey, it's going to be tough for you guys. And if you're kind of a a tuned disciple, you might stand there being like, for us guys, where are you going to be? I'm going to be gone, Jesus says. I'm going to be preparing a place for you. You're going to be the one that's going to be doing the ministry. You're going to be the one that's building the kingdom. You're going to be the one that's, that's enduring to the end. And then the end will come and the Son of Man will return and unite all things to himself. But in that interim time, there's another stage of development for the disciples. They're not just listening anymore and following. They're not just apprenticing anymore. Now they are doing what Jesus did. Jesus dies He rises, and here at the end, at the very last page of the gospel, he says, okay, guys, you're ready. Go make disciples. As I have done for you, you now need to go do for other people. As I have taken you from somebody who knew nothing about God and what he was doing to somebody who imitated and somebody who now can teach and do, you should go out and do that with other people. It's not... For, for Christians, our mission is not just to be Christ-like, although that is part of our mission. Our mission is to be so Christ-like that we help other people be Christ-like. Right? So our mission is not complete if we just internally accept everything Jesus says and we're on the right track and we're doing really well. Our mission is not complete until the people that God has put in our life are on that same path alongside us. We are now active partakers in the mission of of God. So that brings us back to the point that this is not just evangelism, although that is part of it. You've got to baptize people if you're going to be on mission. You've got to take people who are far from God, and you've got to tell them what God has done through Jesus. You've got to bring them into the family through repentance and baptism, but then you've got to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commands. Help people to know Jesus, follow Jesus, look like Jesus, and yes, Obey Jesus. Obey all of his teachings. You know, one of the things that is countercultural for us is this word obey, right? So this is kind of an interesting end to this gospel. It says, 
you know, teach them to observe in the ESV, but that word is just obey. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. It would just be easier, I think, in some ways if he had just said, teach them just to love God, love people, and that would be great. Well, if you've been in the Gospels very long, you realize that to love Jesus is to obey him, right? In John 14, when he's sitting around the table at the Last Supper with his disciples, he makes this point to them. The one who loves me is the one who obeys me. The one who obeys me is the one who loves me. There actually is no way to get out of this, like, I love Jesus, but I don't really do what he says. Then you don't truly love him. Jesus actually makes this kind of ironclad. The proof of love for Jesus is obedience. And the proof of your obedience is your love for Jesus. Right? So if you're obeying without love, you're not truly obeying. But if you're loving without obedience, then you're not truly loving. The way we love Jesus is to take all that he's taught and conform our lives to it and obey him. Now, this this has some big implications for us. If Jesus is standing there in the 30s AD saying, here's the mission of the church for all time. Teach people to obey what I have commanded. You know, some of the things that that means That means that Jesus' teaching, which you actually read in this gospel, is just as relevant today as it was then. We actually don't need to update Jesus' teaching. We just need to follow it. And there will be new contexts that we apply it to. You know, Jesus never talked about social media, but that doesn't mean Jesus has nothing to say about social media. It means Jesus' teaching is obeyable in every single circumstance. So that means we actually can't say things like, that was then, this is now. We can't say that. It, it, that would be like, oh, Jesus didn't see the year 2023 coming. He, you know, for all time, obey my commands, unless it gets very difficult and costly, in which case, you guys just do what you think is best. That's not what Jesus said. Obey everything I taught you. This is the way to live. It also means for us that we actually don't bear the responsibility to reinvent anything. We're just called to be faithful to the message. Here's what God has proclaimed, and we are heralds of that message. Now, the part that does get emphasized in this passage that I want to put before you is make disciples of all nations, of all nations. So this is a serious command, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, like uh, all nations, yes, global missions, we're all about, no, 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 no. Every nation should have disciples in it making disciples. That's why we are so passionate about sending people to the ends of the earth, risking their lives, funding it, figuring out how to do it, using technology, doing whatever we can, not because we have some kind of like weird colonialistic uh, idea about the ends of the earth is because Jesus says, I'm going to have disciples of every nation under heaven. You know, in the, in the final scenes of Revelation, you get this giant mass of worshipers, and it says that the worshipers are from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. But there's going to be people from everywhere there. And so Our mission is to make sure that people from every corner of the earth hear the news of the new high king of heaven and earth and what he has done to bring people back to God. So 
as Christians, as a church especially, you know, we take seriously that our mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because this great commission makes a very serious promise that we are to make disciples, not just of the people around us, but of all nations on the earth. And, and we truly believe that at the end, whenever that is, if it's next year or a million years from now, there will have been a success in the Great Commission to the extent that every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth will have people represented in heaven because we laid our lives down, our money down, our resources, our time, and our energy to take this commission seriously. We want the word of Jesus Christ to get around the whole earth. You know, this fulfills the theme that started with Abraham. When God came to Abraham in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, he said, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you and your family. But I am also going to use your family to bless all the nations of the earth. See, the promise to Adam, the promise to Noah, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, the promise in Christ, the promise to the church is not just that God would send his son to do away with sin. It's that through doing that and through his people, he would take the great blessing of being in the family of God and extend it out all over the earth. This theme, to bless the nations with the presence of God, is part of your mission on this earth. God has put you here. If you're a Christian, God has put you on this planet to make sure that the blessings that come through Jesus extend as far as anyone could go on this planet. See, the part of our lives that is so important in this passage is you were not saved just for you. You were saved to be a part of the great project of God that started with Adam and went through Abraham and went through all of the patriarchs that God's presence would fill the earth and bless the nations. So, Jesus ends with a promise, one of the great promises of the Bible. Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. The great promise of the Bible is that just like it was in the garden, it will be again in the new heavens and the new earth, that God will be our God and we will be his people. And we will walk with him face to face forever. And that promise is now true in Jesus Christ. I am with you always. So the conclusion for us is pretty easy. The Great Commission kind of applies itself. Go up there, tell them lunch is ready. Go up there and tell everybody what God has done. Go out to every part of the end of the earth Tell them what God has done. Help them to conform their lives to Jesus and await the Savior who's coming from heaven who will restore all things and bring perfect justice in the world and we will gather with him and celebrate for all eternity. In fact, it's just a little bit better than lunch is ready. It's go and tell them that the great feast is ready. The table is set. The lamb who is the bridegroom is ready. Heaven is prepared, they're rejoicing as the guests come, and we are extending the invitation. The great wedding supper of the Lamb has been prepared. 
and you have been invited. So come and feast with your God forever. Those are our marching orders. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this message, this, not just this great commission, Lord, but the whole gospel of Matthew that showed us what your plan for us is. And Father, as we enter this Christmas season, Lord, we don't take for granted that every year we celebrate, but every year it just gets richer that you came to our world. You sent your son as a humble, fragile baby to grow up and die on a cross so that we could be a part of your family forever. Father, we ask now that these words wouldn't just go in our ears and out, that they would begin to motivate us and encourage us and fill us with what we need to actually make this commission a reality. Lord, we ask that you would fill the earth with your presence, the knowledge of your son Jesus. We, we do ask that you would reach every tribe, tongue, and nation, but, but Lord, we also ask that you would reach the people we work with and the people we live with and the people that we know. Father, that you would help us to be so Christ-like that by proclaiming what he has done, people would come to know him and love him and obey him. Father, we offer our lives to you in this mission because we know that what you have promised will happen. We have no doubt, Lord, this will be a successful mission, and we are thankful to be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So my offer to you this morning, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as we celebrate communion every week, is come to the table of Jesus. Come and eat. The meal is prepared. And what we do each week when we take communion is we tear off the bread and we dip it in the cup. And as we take that little single bite, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves of the feast that awaits for us at the end of the age. And Jesus has promised when you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes again. That he has died. The edict has gone out. There is a new king and we serve him. So come, as you stand, as we continue to worship, come to the table of Jesus Christ.